Good morning. This morning's scripture is from the book of 1 Kings, the third chapter. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your, your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and, not have, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him, and she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. When, but when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had borne. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, 
but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. The word of the Lord. What do you want? No, seriously, what do you want? That's one of those questions that should just stop you in your tracks because it's a question that reveals. It reveals so much about who we really are, about what we really care about, what it is that we value. And so often that question, what, what, what we really want, is the question that gets neglected. Relationships are frayed to the point of breaking because we refuse to clearly communicate what it is exactly that we want from the other person. Maybe because we're not sure the answer to that question ourselves or we're afraid to tell someone else what we actually want from them because, well, what if they won't give it to us? Or maybe even worse, what if they can't give it to us? That question, what do you want stands at the heart of our passage this morning about Solomon. Solomon, who is famous for his wisdom. In the Bible, his name is almost synonymous with wisdom. But in the words of the great American Christian author Frederick Buechner, Solomon was also one of the wisest fools to ever wear a crown. But at least here in 1 Kings 3, there's much to learn from Solomon and, and, and much to admire about him. So we're going to look at two aspects, really two, the two halves of our passage this morning. The first half is Solomon's prayer for wisdom, and the second half is his practice of wisdom. So prayer and practice. But before we get there, just get us caught up to where we are in the scriptural narrative itself. Last week, we talked about David and Bathsheba, how David slept with her, got her pregnant, murdered her husband, and then they lost the child of that illicit encounter. But he and Bathsheba married and had another son named Solomon. As David was at the end of his life, Bathsheba shrewdly arranged for Solomon to succeed his father David on the throne against his rival older brother from another mother, Adonijah. Adonijah thought the crown was his, but then they went behind his back, got David to name Solomon king, and what transpired then was a bloody consolidation of power. In short order, Solomon killed off his rivals, including his brother and everyone who supported him. Solomon had gained the throne, and so the question now was, what was he going to do with it? And just as an aside, as we saw last week, and as we will see time and time again as we engage with Scripture, the Bible isn't shy about the fact that all the great heroes and heroines within its pages have feet of clay. It doesn't shy away from presenting them to us warts and all. 
Only Jesus Christ was without sin. This should encourage us to look for both the good and bad in the saints of Scripture and take encouragement that, in fact, God uses imperfect people for God's purposes because that's the only kind of people that there are. It doesn't mean that we minimize, excuse, or or wave away bad or immoral behavior. It's just that we recognize that when it comes to human conduct and behavior, there is a mix always of good and bad, of black and white. We are, in Martin Luther's famous words, simul justus et peccator. We are at the same time justified and sinners. And we will be until the God who began a good work in us brings it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. But back to our passage. When we meet Solomon here, he's about 20 years old. He's gotten the throne, so now it's time to rule. As I said, it's one thing to get power or influence. It's quite another thing to know how to use it and to decide, what am I going to use it for? It's like the proverbial dog that caught the car. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses, the first three verses, they give us this Wonderful little summary of the beginning of Solomon's reign. He makes a political alliance with Egypt through marriage. He begins this massive building campaign in Jerusalem, and he worships. But what sets Solomon apart from all the other biblical kings we see in verse 3, no other person in the Old Testament does it say this about them. It says that Solomon loved the Lord. It's remarkable that he's the only person where it says that Solomon loved the Lord the Lord. So his prayer then, it comes from a heart filled with love for God. And so when it comes to prayer, when it comes to knowing what to ask God for, there's no substitute for loving God because when we love God, we will eventually at least love what God loves and want what God wants. And because Solomon loves God, he worships God, and and then the Lord appears to him in a dream and asks, but it's not really a request, it's a, it's a command. Ask what I shall give you. What do you want? There's that question. You know, if God said this to you, ask what I shall give you, what would you say? What is it that you want the most? It's one of the hardest questions when I was thinking about this passage and, you know, reflecting on how would I answer this question. I go, you know, I know there's two ways I can answer it. Sort of the, uh, you know, public pastor, uh, sort of stained glass version of how I can answer this question. You know, God, give me the ability to, to reach people for Jesus Christ. That's what I want more than anything. That's kind of the Sunday school answer. But then there's the real answer, what lies underneath. God, I want security. I just want to know everything's going to be okay, that that I'll be protected from battle, that you will keep me, Lord, above the fray. Keep me safe. But if that's what I want, do I really love God? And so God says, you did. Ask me, what do you want? And Solomon begins his answer. He doesn't ask for anything straight away. He begins his answer by recounting God's past faithfulness to David and his family. And so Solomon confesses, he says, I only am where I am. I only am what I am because of God, what you've done. There's nothing that Solomon himself has done to earn his position. 
And Solomon's prayer comes from a heart filled with love, which is rooted in an understanding of and an appreciation of God's grace. And when Solomon looks at the present and what he doesn't have that he needs to ask for, he sees his inadequacy. He says, I'm, a, 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 I'm just a little child, which is hyperbole. He's 20 years old, but he is completely unqualified for and inex- inexperienced for the task of ruling what he says, this great people. And that word great there is the same as heavy. This is a burden that is too heavy for him to carry at this young age. He's small and not up to the job, not up to the task. And Solomon might eventually ask for wisdom, but we see here that true wisdom begins with an understanding of our own limitations. True wisdom starts with understanding what we can't do. Because when we try to do something that we can't, that's when we reveal ourselves to be foolish. To illustrate, imagine for whatever reason, Amy or Katie or Mikey or any of the other great and gifted capable in this congregation were gone some Sunday. And so we said, hey, we need a worship leader. And I raised my hand and said, oh, I can, I, can, I can take care of that this Sunday, no problem. If I said that and I did that, I would reveal myself to be a fool as I did my best bad karaoke over some terrible, you know, pre-recorded music. And so wisdom starts with recognizing, yes, God's all-sufficient grace and also our insufficiency for the job of extending the kingdom of God. Wise is the person who says, I don't know. And especially wise is the person who says, I need help. And so often those are the things that we're afraid to say because we're afraid that if we say, I don't know, or I need help, people will think we're foolish. But the opposite is true. So God commands Solomon, ask for what you want. And Solomon begins by recalling God's grace and and he confesses his own inadequacy. But then he gets to the ask at long last. He's got to ask for something. So he gets to the ask. And he says, the thing that, that I know that I need in order to be king over this people to govern them is an understanding mind and the ability to discern between good and evil. In other words, Solomon asks for wisdom. And wisdom is one of those biblical concepts that's like a, a diamond. It's, it's beautiful and it's multifaceted and, and you can look at it from a thousand different angles. And wisdom in, in the Bible, the way it's used, it, it ranges from, it covers this whole sort of domain of activities from the skill of a craftsman or craftsperson in building. That's wisdom. It takes wisdom to build well. But wisdom is also this quasi-divine mediating figure who's present with God at creation. Wisdom is behind the ordering of creation and for human beings. Wisdom is knowing how to live our lives consistent with God's purposes in creation. Wisdom is both art and science. It's both practical and mystical. It can be both acquired and can only be received as a gift from God. I love what one commentator had to say as as how to define wisdom. He wrote, true wisdom involves skill in human relationships as well as the ability to understand and cooperate with the basic laws God has built into creation. Wise people not only have knowledge of human nature and of the creative world, but they know how to use that knowledge in the right way at the right time. Wisdom isn't a theoretical idea or an abstract commodity. It's very practical and personal. There are many people who are smart enough to make a good living, but they aren't wise enough to make a good life. 
a life of fulfillment that honors the Lord. To distill it to a very practical example, wisdom involves both knowing that a tomato is a fruit and that you shouldn't put it in a fruit salad. It's technical and practical. And what's remarkable is that when he's faced with this test, to ask God for whatever he wants, Solomon focuses on what he needs to be a good king. And not just the kind of things that he might want for himself. His focus is on that which is bigger than himself. And so that too is wisdom, to understand that we aren't the center of the universe. In order to govern, in order to be a ruler, Solomon sees that he needs to be wise. He needs a hearing heart. That's what the Hebrew says which is the same as what we would call a listening mind. And so wisdom comes from listening. Listening to God, listening to other people. If you think of the people that you consider wise in your own life and experience, probably to a person, you would say, that oh, that person is a good listener. And they're an astute observer of human psychology and behavior. So wisdom comes first from listening and observing, and when that happens, we can come to a place to discern good and evil. That's Solomon's prayer for wisdom. It begins with God's invitation. Ask what I shall do for you. It's, it's rooted in Solomon's love for God and his apprehension of God's past grace and his insufficiency, and it is focused on the greater good and not the glorification of self. And when Solomon asks for that, God is so pleased with what he asks for that he gets everything else. He gets riches. He gets reputation. It's like Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Matthew, seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then all these things, which all these things are the things that we spend time worrying about, all these things will be added unto you. So that's Solomon's prayer for wisdom. But then right after that, we get this beautiful illustration and example of Solomon's practice of wisdom. And it takes up the rest of our passage. And it's a recounting, this famous recounting of the tale of the two women disputing the maternity of the baby. As we look at this half of the passage, we can see why does Solomon need to practice wisdom? What is it about this situation that speaks to why we need wisdom? And who is this practice of wisdom for? And lastly, what it all points us to. So why does Solomon need to practice wisdom in this situation? He needs to practice wisdom for the same reason that any of us does. We need wisdom when we're faced with a choice where the rules will not help us. Right? If you have a rule, you don't really need wisdom. You don't need to. You just make a decision. There's a box that says check yes or no. You check yes or no. But what do you do when things are more complicated than that? When you have to decide, say, for example, who is the mother of this child? Who does it belong to? Who is telling the truth? If you're a judge, how would you figure this out normally? Well, normally you'd have two, these two rival claimants, and so then you'd consider the evidence and you'd rely upon the testimony of other people. But the problem here was there was no one else in the house. They were the only two in, in the brothel. Maybe you'd ask the father who the child belong to, but since these are prostitutes, there's no one there to claim paternity. It's just a she said, she said situation. And you can see how their testimony goes round and round and round. The living child is mine, the dead child is yours. No, 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 no. The living child is mine and the dead child is hers. Solomon is faced with a choice. He's got to make a decision. 
And the rules aren't going to help him make it. He needs wisdom. And invariably, we all find ourselves in that place. You have an offer for another job. Should you stay or should you go? You're qualified for both. They both seem like good companies, et cetera, et cetera. Which one should you choose? It takes wisdom. Wisdom requires digging below the surface choice and getting to the heart of things. That's, that's what wisdom does. It, it reveals the heart. That's what Solomon does in pulling out his sword and saying, divide the baby. He gets to the heart of things, reveals the hearts of these two women to find the real mother. And so we need wisdom when faced with a choice, not just between facts, but between competing values. So that's when we need wisdom. But, but who is the practice of wisdom for? And this brings us to an incredibly important point. This is the only story we get in Scripture of, okay, Solomon has this reputation. He's famous for being wise, but this is really the only example that we get of his wisdom in practice. We're told, you know, he wrote thousands of, of songs and psalms and proverbs. But where do we get to really see that wisdom in practice in governing besides here? For the only example of his wisdom, we get the story of two prostitutes fighting over a child. Solomon is this great king, and even though it's, it's just the beginning of his reign, you know, we know the end of the story, that he's going to be the richest, most powerful, in many ways the most successful king in the history of Israel. His rule will be the absolute pinnacle. After Solomon, the kingdom splits in two, and this long downward spiral towards exile begins. But here is this king who, who, who is rising, who will rise to the apex of power, and he's deciding a case between two women who are at the absolute bottom of the social, political, cultural, moral world. You'd expect that someone like Solomon would have nothing to do with them or their case. So here's the truth we see, that wisdom is for everyone. And to be a wise and just ruler, you have to use that wisdom to provide justice for everyone, especially the poor and powerless. And when the people saw how wisdom, Solomon used his wisdom in this case, the last verse of our text tells us, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king. And this is the key part. Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Wisdom is the powerful caring for the powerless, the strong defending the cause of the weak, the rich seeking the good of the poor. Solomon's wisdom is seen that these two women and this child matter as much as everyone else. And so as Christians, when we look at society, we should be for causes that extend justice to those for whom it is routinely denied. And there's many situations actually that this isn't even that controversial. These are things that actually, uh, to the rarest thing of all in this country, is, is unite the right and, and the left. Things like ending mass incarceration or over-incarceration, doing away with cash bail, restoring voting rights to most felons. These are simple ways that we can extend justice to everyone, to include people in the body politic who for so long have been told they don't matter, they don't count. And to do that is wise. Because when we extend justice to the poor and the powerless, we are doing what Peter Lightheart says in his commentary on this passage. He writes, carried out 
with wisdom, politics is a craft, the product of which is social harmony and beauty. That's the need to practice wisdom when we're faced with a choice where the rules can't help us, and that's who wisdom is for. It's for everyone, and it's for the just ordering of society from top to bottom. And lastly, there is this question of what does Solomon's wisdom point us to? Because even though Solomon was, was celebrated, lauded for his wisdom, he ultimately died a fool. You know, he begins with one marriage to Pharaoh's daughter out of political expediency, and, and, and by the end, he has hundreds of wives and concubines. He worships in the high places, which is verboten in Scripture, but we're told, well, he did it because there was not yet a temple for him to worship in, but still going on at the end of his reign. And in fact, by the end of his life, Israel was rife with the worship of foreign gods. And yes, he, he built a house for the Lord and one for himself, but his brutal labor practices led the kingdom splitting in two after his death. When David died, when his father died, the people mourned. They mourned. When, when Solomon died, the people begged his son to lighten their load. By the end of his life, Solomon had traded the wisdom of God for the wisdom of this world, and in the process, he had become the fool that he had warned others about. And so what this points us to is that the wisdom of this world is exposed as foolishness by Christ, who is the wisdom of God present even within this passage. Because we see here that the principle of worldly wisdom is that if you want something, you need to grasp after it. Take it for yourself. That's what the woman of the dead child did. But the principle of divine wisdom is that only when you give something away will you get what you really want. Solomon gives up the dignity of his office to decide the case of these two prostitutes. And only after he does that is he celebrated as wise. Jesus gives up the glories of heaven and takes on the form of a servant for us in our salvation. The woman who was the mother of the living child said, take him from me. Don't destroy his life. Destroy mine. Don't cut him. Cut me. Don't take his joy. Take mine. And Jesus did that for us. He said, take me, not them. Not your lives, but mine. Cut me off, not them. Take my joy, not theirs. My life instead of yours. on the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the cross. I close with these words, Paul's beautiful words from his first letter to the Corinthians, where he says, starting in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Might we never, ever, ever forget that.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.